Critically Linked, how books of the past shape our future. A Discourse Net podcast with Dana Triff and Jaspal Singh. My name is Dana Triff and my name is Jaspal Singh and together we are the hosts of Critically Linked, How Past Books Shape Our Futures, a podcast that wants to re-engage with old and sometimes new philosophers while asking at the same time how relevant their ideas still are when discussing contemporary challenges. In our previous episode we discussed Ernesto Laclau and his seminal book Hegemony and Socialist Strategy towards the radical democratic politics, which he co-wrote with his wife, Belgian philosopher Chantal Mouffe. Today, we take a step back in time and we look at one of the philosophers who, intellectually speaking, paved the way for Laclau, Karl Marx. Welcome to the fourth episode of the series. Together with us today are Anna Doimert, Professor of Linguistics at the University of Cape Town, Anna is a researcher and a teacher of courses in the broader field of African sociolinguistics. She is currently exploring the use of language in global political movements, as well as the contributions of decolonial thought to sociolinguistic theory. Thank you very much for the invitation, Dana and Jaspal. It's a pleasure to be here with you, and I'm looking forward to our conversation. And um, Christian Chun, Associate Professor of Applied linguistics at the University of Massachusetts, Boston. In his work, um, Christian has explored topics such as power and meaning making in English language teaching, the critique of neoliberalism, critical pedagogy, and many more. His most recent project is a book, The Language of Our Politics, to be published with Cambridge University Press. Thank you, Dana and Jess Bell for inviting me. It's quite an honor to participate in this discussion. So Karl Marx, born in 1818 and died in 1883, is a philosopher who was 65 years old when he died. Karl Marx might be remembered for many things, a revolutionary, a political activist, a journalist, a father figure of Marxism, which is a theoretical approach in the social sciences and the humanities alike. Marxism is also the political ideology defining what we now refer to as left politics. Rather ignominiously, it also spawned some of the harshest dictatorships in human history under the label of communism. So Marx, who died rather young for a philosopher, managed in his relatively short lifespan to create a truly indelible mark on human culture globally. He was German, born in a Prussian province to a Jewish family. He lived in exile in Paris and Brussels before eventually settling in London, where he is also buried at Highgate Cemetery. He wrote in German, English, and French. Today, we are contextualizing his thought a bit, and we discuss one chapter, chapter 10, called The Working Day, from volume one of our famous magnus opum, Capital, Capital, published in 1867. So right off the bat, what were your first thoughts when rereading this chapter? In which ways is it still relevant today? 
Um, it, you know, it's interesting because I, you know, upon uh, rereading it um, for like, I, I don't know how many times I've read it before, but um, it, it, it is as relevant today as ever, uh, because uh, especially in the um, quote unquote post pandemic, I, for those of us who think the pandemic is, is over where he talks about the, the number of diseases, especially with the child workers. Um, and it just reminded me, in, in the context of the U.S. at least, where, um, as you know, all the all these workers um, who were not being provided uh, during 2020 were not being provided with protective equipment, uh, no hand sanitizers, no masks, no nothing. Um, and they were far higher rates of mortality because of that, because they were contracting the virus at much higher rates. And so it disputes that whole discourse that evolved in the U.S. where, oh, COVID is the great equalizer. Uh, no, because, as you know, the documented it shows that rich um, people uh, who didn't have to go to work uh, were um, far lower mortality rates than predominantly Black and Latinx workers in the context of the U.S., like in Los Angeles and New York, Black and Latinx workers who were living in crowded conditions and had to work uh, on-site and pay, take public transportation and during the first few months of the pandemic. So it, it was a it was a reminder of that. Yes, my first thoughts on rereading the paper, I mean, apart from the fact that I do believe that, you know, this chapter, as well as anything Marx has written, remains exactly for the reasons Christian has said, so relevant today, because we can see the same structures playing themselves out today. And I think we will be talking more about this now as we go forward. But actually, upon rereading the paper several times over the past few days, um, I was actually astonished also by its depth and its language the way Marx manages to draw, to draw one into the debate, how he brings all these voices through quotations, his own voice, the voice of the worker, right at the beginning, this kind of figure of a you know, typical worker who engages in a negotiation. Um, so it's, it's kind of, it's an aesthetically, incredibly multi-layered text, while at the same time, politically and analytically, also very astute. And then, the other thing, and I think this is whenever I reread Marx, no matter what text, is I'm really inspired by his use of metaphor and what it does, and if we take his metaphor seriously. So it's the capitalist as, as the vampire who sucks the blood of the workers. It's the werewolf who cannot control their appetite for greater and greater profits. And he says that, you know, it's repeatedly. I mean, there's so many moments, that, you know, the 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 industries that you know spin silk with the blood of children it's it's a it's, it's a deathscape that is actually being painted in this chapter um and it kind of creates for me from the very beginning the question is if capital if the capitalist is the vampire the werewolf how can we ever negotiate with them how can we ever hope that they will do anything good because it's not in their nature the vampire will never stop sucking blood. The werewolf will not stop eating. So, so right from the beginning, by using the, you know, these metaphors, there is a whole question of what the revolution can mean and whether reform 
is ever possible. And for me, actually, a lot of that, of this particular chapter is about the impossibility of reform. But we can come to that, I think, as we kind of explore its depth. So, so you talked a little bit about the metaphors and about the language used and the, and the whole style of the text and the writing. Would you say in your reading experience, as you reread it now, that this was an old text or like a sort of a historically old text, or could it could it have been written five years ago? What would you say, Christian? I think that's a really important question. I mean, you know, aside from a few, um, I would say particular linguistic choices or a little bit of a style, but for the most part, I think readers would be able to connect with it, you know, and, and, and it's also interesting you raise that point because, I mean, as you know, both Marx and his good friend and colleague and financial supporter, as you know, Frederick Ingalls, they both uh, strove to write in an accessible way. Uh, more so than their contemporaries. I mean, again, if I, I, I don't know in your experience, but back in the day when I've tried to read uh, Hegel, I was like, what, 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 what? what? Um, and so, you know, de definitely Marx and Engels were like, you know, uh, screw that. I know we're being recorded, so screw that, you know what. But so we're, they were trying to, and, and they, as you know, it was also journalists. So they were trying to write in a more accessible manner. Yeah, I, I would totally agree. I think that, you know, of course, there are moments um, when a certain word choice seems a bit antiquated, perhaps. Actually, I found that reading this, so I was reading the English and the German version kind of parallel. And the interesting thing about the German version was it felt older, but it was only because of the orthography. So it was a visual olderness because I wasn't so used to some of the orthographic conventions that were being used. Um, but otherwise, it you know, it could have been written five years ago. Um, and I mean, also the historical, yes, some of the examples would be different. The voices that would be cited would be different, but it would be no difficulty kind of animating the text for today and finding voices of children that are being exploited in factories around the world. Um, voices of, 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 of the capitalists who say, we cannot switch off our machines because we would lose profit. So we, we could actually quite easily some of the historical examples fill with contemporary examples. So let's maybe now delve a bit into the text. I'm going to start this by quoting from Marx. Capital did not invent surplus labor. Wherever a part of society possesses the monopoly of the means of production, the worker, free or unfree, must add to the labor time necessary for his own maintenance an extra quantity of labor time in order to produce the means of subsistence for the owner of the means of production, whether this proprietor be an Athenian aristocrat, an Etruscan theocrat, a Civic Romanus, a Norman baron, an American slave owner, a Valachian boyar, a modern landlord, or a capitalist. It is, however, clear that in any economic formation of society where the use value rather than the exchange value of the product predominates, surplus labor will be restricted by a more or less confined set of needs, and that no boundless thirst for surplus labor will arise from the character of production itself. But as soon as peoples whose production still moves within the lower forms of slave labor, the corvée, etc., are drawn into a world market dominated by the capitalist mode of production, whereby the sale of their products for export 
develops into their principal interest, the civilized horrors of overwork are grafted onto the barbaric horrors of slavery, serfdom, etc. So let's ease ourselves a little bit um, into the discussion by asking some very basic questions. First of all, what is surplus labor? How do we measure it? And I want to again refer to Marx here because he has given us perhaps a deceptively easy answer. So the difference between surplus labor is the difference between how much we work and how much we need to work. There is an extra there. What, what would be your first thoughts on this definition? Yeah. The, way, the way Marx beautifully, yeah, it, it is a beautifully written paragraph, portrays um, the problem, the paradox that capital presents us with. Yeah, I, I think you, you know, you say it's deceptively easy, the answer Marx gives. And I think it's actually one of the beauty of Marx's thought is that he doesn't try to make things complicated in an unnecessary way, because it is deceptively easy. There is necessary labor, the labor we need to reproduce ourselves, the labor to survive, that, that is necessary labor. And then there is surplus labor, which is simply the labor we do, which doesn't benefit us in any way. The surplus labor only benefits capital because it creates profits for capital. So it is deceptively easy. So if we look at our workday, I think Mark says we need six hours to, uh, to reproduce. Um, I think David Harvey says we need four hours to reproduce. A normal workday normal work um, in some countries, you know, might be maybe in Europe, might be around eight hours a day. So every day we would work four hours for ourselves, necessary labor for us to survive. And we work four hours totally unnecessary so that somebody can make profit and not us. That's the surplus labor. So it is deceptively easy. Christian, do you agree with Anna? No, I mean, as usual, I agree with Anna, um, but I'll put it in the context of um, our workplace, academia. And so when we think about surplus labor of academics, how much are we actually producing? Um, because as you know, for most of us at least, um, we work literally nonstop every single day. I, When I was chasing tenure between the years of 2013 to 2019, I would feel guilty if I actually took a whole day off on a Saturday or Sunday. I felt like, oh my God, I need to be working. So, so, so what does that mean? Let, let me dig a bit deeper into this, um, into our own experiences of, of labor. Um, we don't have necessarily a, a capitalist with a whip <laughs> standing there saying, you need to work a few more hours, um, especially since the pandemic, in my experience, I've been working from home most of the time. No one is really checking on me. No, no individual is really checking on me most of the time if I'm online, if I'm not online. I could have a nap on a Tuesday at 11 a.m. Um, no one would necessarily notice. But I think what Christian there said was that Sell, that feeling of guilt that we impose on ourselves. So would you say that 
you know, we have sort of incorporated the capitalist into, into our own soul. And we are now sort of self-policing um, and through the mechanism of guilt um, um, work more than we actually need to work. Yeah, I mean, it's complicated. Yes. I mean, part of it is, yes, I agree. yes, we totally internalize it. Um, but on the other hand, yeah, I mean, yes, it's not quite as, you know, of course, and I would totally understand where, for example, someone working in a factory would say to us as academics, it's like, are you, are you, are you freaking serious? Really? No, because you don't have a boss, you know, looking over your shoulder. And I would agree with that to some extent. However, as you know, again, um in terms of like uh annual faculty reports we have to write down what we've produced and also uh again in terms of academics chasing tenure the the requirements of producing a certain x amount of articles and or books or whatever and so it's in, in academia it's a combination of both and where um you'd have you know whether whether it's the chancellor president whatever of the university and then board of trustees and then whatever the rankings of the university blah 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 and, and but then it's also how we internalize uh that um you know i think most likely marx didn't have us uh, in mind when when he was writing these things um but it does it does make us more aware of the fact that we are also workers we are also the owners of our labor and what does it mean for us um, as academics really to produce so much uh, surplus? Um, but I want I want to take you a bit uh, a step back to the text again, because there is one particular category of, of workers that is particularly vulnerable. Um, they were considered workers back then when Marx was writing. And I am afraid that in some places they still are. He gives us in the text horrendous reports of child labor in the 19th century England, children as young as seven years old beginning work at 6 a.m. and finishing at 9 p.m., so 15 hours per day. He writes about squalid working conditions and working days that stretch forever. And in that sense, the capital, to me at least, uh, sounded a lot like a <laughs> Charles Dickens novel. Um, and Marx's information comes from official reports by inspectors who, following the Factory Act of 1850, something that he praises, began to audit, finally, factory owners to see whether they abided by the 10 hours workday regulations. Uh, um, so I, I quote again. The English Parliament reduced the working day of children of 13 to 18 years old to 12 full hours in four branches of industry. So this, this sounds horrific, I think, for us um, as a modern audience. Uh, so have we truly grown out of such situations, though? Is child labor today a thing of the past? And of course, what does this tell us also about the working day itself? Um, I mean, it, it, we all know it's still continuing. We know child labor is not a thing of the past. We know that the working conditions the world over remain caught in the capitalist desire for maximum profit. So that, that hasn't changed. Um, super ex exploitation, which Marx also writes about, remains a central feature of labor, my, labor relations in the global south. So the moment we kind of move away from Euro-America, from, uh, you know, politics where there's maybe 
a fair amount of labor protection. We see it's happening, um, it's rampant, but we also see it in the global north. And I mean, we might wanna think about the term precarity, which has come up in the global north to speak exactly to the fact that we now see again in the global north, populations that are being super exploited something which has never gone away in the global south so that sometimes you know if you come if you come from a global south perspective the 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 kind of term precarity seems it's nothing new it has always been there but so that you know that's kind of shows that you know what is also happening in the global north and then i also think you mentioned the, the laws and everything and i think that is also another moment where marx speaks actually directly to what is still happening in the world Namely, that capital doesn't mind if they break the laws. They just pay the fine. We see that again and again and again in factories that violate workers' rights. They will just pay the fine. And that speaks to something else. Namely, that, and it, it also is directly in the text itself, that the law is on the side of capital, not on the side of the worker. Because the fines that get imposed are always low enough to not affect the profits. So it's worth paying the fine. Well, you know, child labor is still going on here in the US because um, recently the New York Times reported that uh, the undocumented immigrant labor of children, uh, roughly around the ages around 14 to 17, uh, but they are being used in, primarily in the agricultural industries here in the US. Uh, but the the U.S. Uh, the New York Times um, they sent reporters out to investigate in in, in, um, in obviously clear violations of the child labor laws the U.S. government passed um, I believe around the 1930s, but um, these companies are still doing that with the undocumented immigrant labor of children. Yeah, I mean child labor. If I just can say a few things as well about my experiences of, of seeing children work in India. Um, where, where my father is from and I visited many, many, many times. Um, and child labor is so uh, so much in the open. It is it's everywhere you can, you know, you go to construction sites, for instance, you, you see whole families working on these construction sites. <clears throat> Each family member has sort of a different role. Um, so that's hard labor in the heat, very dangerous. Often, you know, people are working um, just like in flip-flops. But then also in uh, in other situations like domestic um, labor, um, domestic uh, servants or domestic helpers, as they call them, um, where you have entire families living at people's houses. The father is, for instance, a driver, the mother is a cook and a cleaner, and then they have like three or four children who grow up into this servitude, we might call it, and oftentimes they are not being sent to school. So there isn't um, uh, sort of an opportunity for them to come out of that class of, la of laborers, of servants. And, and this reminds me of, of, of a passage in Marx as well, where, where he talks about the reproduction of the working class as a, as a particular sort of class of laborers who serve the capitalists, right? So, and there's no opportunity, there's no class mobility in that sense um, for, for these children to, to, to come out of that class position. Uh, and in that sense, that, that is also just beyond the, the plight of the individual child uh, or the individual worker. Marx also touches upon that reproduction of, of a whole class of workers that, that sort of feeds into, into capitalism. 
Um, but I just want to sort of ask a very mundane question. How many hours should one work or how many hours perhaps would you like to work per day, Christian? I mean, it's a very uh, difficult question to answer. But, you know, the older I, I mean, just on a personal note, the older I get, time flies by faster and faster. And so when you think about like how each day just suddenly it's like the day is already gone. Um, and thinking about if you, you know, for the worker who has to show up at the office or the factory from like an eight, for example, an eight hour day, um, their whole day is gone. Um, by the time they get home, they're exhausted, of course, right? So, you know, it's just, again, I think in terms of like, well, what, what, what is actually the work involved and uh, how would the workers would uh, decide on how much time to put in? It's a complicated question. Actually, this is the question that was playing in my mind for the past few days as I was reflecting on the text. And I was taking that kind of very first paragraph where Mark says necessary labor is six hours a day. And I was just taking that number, whether it's six or five or four, as others have argued, doesn't really matter, but it is less than what we are working now. That That is, is as much as we know, that we know for sure. And I was, I was starting to think like, why am I so resistant to work six hours a day? Why is it hard for me to imagine to wake up at eight, start work and stop six hours later and not work, not go for a work so that, walk so that I'm refreshed after the walk so that I can work more or not to go for, you know, take a take a nap so that I can work more, but to actually say six hours. Now the day is over. Why am I so resistant to it? And I think that brings me back to what Christian was also saying earlier. And I mean, of course, we are thinking from our own experience as academic workers in a lot of ways as well. But what does it mean for us? And, you know, when Christian was saying, how, you know, we work weekends, we work 60 hour weeks as academics. And do we actually ask why? What would happen if we stop? What would happen if we don't do it? Instead, I'm not sure if this is a global thing, but I find in very, very many academic environments, there is almost a pride attached to say, oh yeah, I worked through the whole weekend. Oh, I, you know, I work 60 hours. You, you take weekends off, really? How do, how do you manage to take leave so that it becomes something that is almost strange for us to realize? So yeah, maybe you can help me to think through this. Why is it so hard for us to think, actually, six hours and I stop. Right, um, and you mentioned the six hours and I think uh, there's a you know, lot of reports now coming from Nordic countries or Scandinavian countries, where they introduce six hour weeks as this kind of progressive ideal. And one of the arguments that I always see in combination with that is productivity actually goes up. So it's again, it's actually quite interesting how something that is apparently like progressive is actually legitimized again in capitalist terms. Whereas they say, actually, even for you capitalist, um, if you let your workers work for six hours, productivity goes up for you. So you actually make more money. So I think it's quite interesting how in this neoliberal moment in which we live, it's not really about the individual worker or the well-being of, of the individual as a sort of dignified human. Um, living in a in a in a in a way that is that is not dictated by work but rather by the human experience and by love and relationships and 
whatever activities you like to do um uh, but rather by always determined by 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 you know how much how productive it is um and how uh, you know how much more can you actually feed into the capitalist machine maybe if i can just come in there a little bit uh, because it is also the way you know this is shows i think how we have normalized capitalist thinking so you know reading the text by marx carefully what we have normalized is the world of vampires and the world world of werewolves that is the world we have, have agreed to live in so we have arranged ourselves in a kind of way of working with vampires and to accept that they always suck a little bit from us. But what if we actually question, do we need to make profit? Do we need surplus labor? Can we ask that question in our societies? Or is that a question that when we ask it, somebody would say, you know, no, how can you ask such a question? You really haven't thought this through carefully, obviously. So because what if we don't need to? universities, even our own workplaces, edu you know, educational institutions are increasingly working on a profit model. Um, so wh why is, why, how have we normalized this? And what would happen if we step away and actually allow a six hour working day, not because it's more profitable, but because it's better for us? Um, I want to shift the topic a bit and delve into a very recent development um, that has in some ways shook the world and definitely uh, really changed academic labor as well. And that is um, the development of AI, artificial intelligence. So since the beginning of this year, 2023, there has been a lot of talk about uh, advancements in artificial intelligence and their applicability across sectors of society. Large language modules, models like ChatGPT and open source AI have been generating questions about their role in education and learning in particular. In March 2023, the British newspaper, The Guardian, published an article titled, AI makes plagiarism harder to detect argue academics. The subject was the publication of a scholarly article in an education journal uh, with the title Chatting and Cheating, Ensuring Academic Integrity in the Era of ChatGPT. The article had passed peer review without the reviewers realizing that it had been entirely written by ChatGPT. So in his chapter, Working Day, Marx does talk about machines which could, in theory at least, make the life of workers easier. Is this what is happening right now? Rather than decrying plagiarism or uh, the, the possibility of students and perhaps also lecturers cheating by using uh, ChatGPT, should we celebrate that uh, perhaps artificial intelligence is freeing us from the need to work more than necessary? Okay, you know, I, I don't know if my opinion is going to be somewhat controversial or contradictory, but um, I, I would argue that no, that in this context, AI is replacing us. It's replacing us as workers. And it's not only just replacing us as workers, it is destroying any, um, how can I put this, it's destroying our, you know, our modes of creativity or how we're thinking and um, and also, again, on the material level, it's, it'll, it'll be replacing teachers, uh, public school teachers. And so 
you know, and it, this it is this is benefiting you know the capitalists. Where like, okay, we don't have to pay anyone for anything, but just use AI, and they'll just be generating all that stuff anyway. So who needs actual human labor? We have the uh, machine labor now. Yeah, I, I I agree, and I think even if it might maybe it will still take some time, but until it, it gets to the point where we are fully replaced. But just you know, think through something very simple. I think when if ChatGTP is starting to allow is starting to assist with marking, ChatGPT will get to a point when it can help us to mark essays. So what will that mean? Will that mean that we get given the free time? Imagine it, it would actually work. So actually, you know, instead of spending a week marking essays, we only spent two days moderating these essays with the assistance of ChatGPT. So that would be the idea that things are getting easier. But now realistically, anyone, and we are all academics, does any one of us believe that our institutions will give us the three days for either research or leisure? No. What will happen is they will increase the enrollment numbers so that more essays can be marked, more students can be registered, more fees can be paid, more profit can be generated. So it's exactly the same as with machines in the 19th century. They might allow us to do something more, a time-consuming task more efficiently. They might assist us. But in the end, that assistance only means we can do more of that task. Our work can identify, intensify and we're again generating profits. So we're not exiting the system at all. So the advent of ChatGPT um, is, is, is one of the challenges uh, that we have today. Um, but at the same time, very many things are happening also um, in a topic that Marx would also consider dear to his soul, and that is um, international trade. Uh, he does speak in this uh, chapter, even if perhaps in incidentally, about free trade and how the capitalists had become, had embraced this new ideology of free trade. Um, and it has indeed uh, shaped the world in which we live today. It has shaped the global trade system. And I was surprised to see um, surprised to read some changes in the discourse. We come back to the discourse and how important it is, right, um, in the language uh, of the Biden administration's officials. Um, because the United States has long been the promoter of free trade and globalization. However, very recently, this discourse appears to have changed. I have read about people from his team talk about a new US um, trade policy. For example, um, Trade Representative Catherine Tide delivered a speech last Thursday, June 14th, at the National Press Club in Washington, in which she said that higher wages and diverse supply chains, not lower costs, were now leading priorities for American trade policy. Um, Sabir Rahman, until recently Biden's head um, of the Office of Information and Regulatory Affairs, echoed her words by speaking about moving away from, quote, the old colonial extractive model of economics and, again, quote, from an extractive global economy to something that lifts everyone up. That's, that's beautiful terminology. And it continues um, with also a former um, antitrust advisor for Biden, Tim Wu, um, who made these points even more explicit in leftist terminology. And I quote again, not to overstate this, but in class terms, there are working classes around the world 
that are also large, concentrated producers around the world. Even through um, and over borders, you can see that natural um, interests of these classes are diverging. So, so what is going on? Um, this is these are really well positioned policymakers, very close um, to um, to the presidency of the United States of America. Um, they have the power to shape the global trade system. They have the power to shape um, the discourse uh, um, in which uh, trade is is being couched. So, what is going on here? Are we rediscovering Marx somehow in the way we speak? Possibly also, are we going to implement economic policies that he advocated many, many, many years ago? Um, Christian, I think you're more aware of these debates in the United States. What is your opinion? What's what's happening? Okay, call me cynical, but I would say uh, no, because <clears throat> what they're doing from my point of view is appropriating some of these terms. And again, within the context of when they're talking about, you know, going beyond the colonial, blah, blah, blah. It, well, I think it is in um, implied, um, again, from my point of view, the referring to the rise of the global uh, competing economies of China, where before 30, 40 years ago, yeah, yes, the, the U.S. didn't have to worry about them. They were worried about Japan, as you know, but now they're worried about another country. Um, and so where these um, administrators are using uh, leftist language to justify particular trade policies uh, and talking about workers, it's like... Um, all talk and no action. So uh, what have you actually actually done for workers here in the US? Uh, and again, is it from the viewpoint of bolstering the US economy in the face and fear of other global economies? I'm just as skeptical as Christian is, and I think maybe in, in this respect also a diehard Marxist, because um, I, you know, again, I just want to say vampires. Vampires can say all kinds of things. They don't mean them. It's, it goes against their nature. So it's, you know, and, and if you think of it, you know, higher wages, that sounds great. But higher wages may, means more consumption. That good, that's good for capitalism. There's a reason to give. It's not because you want to be nice or you suddenly discover that it's good to su support the worker. It's because you need to have more consumption. It's good for the economy. And so, again, it's always, you know, there to support the system, I think. And also, we shouldn't forget that capitalism at the moment is in one of its crises. Capitalism goes through crises again and again. And when it gets into a crisis, it reinvents itself. So now it reinvents itself by adopting a kind of feel-good, well-being terminology, which makes people think they mean well, but the system continues. The system of exploitation, capitalism cannot become anything else than exploitation. It's impossible. And so for me, what Marx argues for and what he wants is revolution. It's not reform. This is another example of reform. Reform will just keep the system going. And we can have that discussion, of course, whether there is something good about capitalism. Some people might argue there is. I'm not sure about it. Um, 
but maybe there is something good about it. So then maybe it's good that we stabilize the system. But if we agree that capitalism is an exploitative system that we need to get, that we need to end, then reform is not going to help. Simple as that. It's just going to stabilize it and it's going to get through its next crisis and carry on. And, and maybe also there, you know, just to bring in something we haven't talked about and something which is not in the text and which I think goes to the question of consumption and overconsumption. We also got to think about what capitalism does to the climate, does to our earth. Has all, the exploitation is, and Marx speaks about it in one or two places in the chapter, that the exploitation of labor is the same as the exploitation of the earth, the same as the exploitation of the land. So it is a system that is fundamentally destructive. Um, I would love to, to comment uh, on what Anna was saying. We just have to somehow push a bit the discussion further. And there is this description of work that Marx is doing at length in this chapter that I really want to touch upon. And that is this differentiation uh, of our work rhythm between day and night shifts. And of course, again, this was uh, extremely abused by the 19th century um, English capitalists. Uh, in, in Marx's presentation. Um, and it was a horrible way of forcing people to work as much as possible beyond 12 hours, beyond 15 hours. He, he describes uh, the life uh, of the bakery masters who have to, had to work uh, during the night, um, relying uh, on, uh, on child labor again in such uh, very, very difficult con conditions. Um, and it wasn't very efficient because apparently the bread uh, ended up being really bad in London. Um, and it seems somehow that today these shifts in factory work have been normalized. We kind of accept as normal um, the fact that some have to work during the night and some have to work during the day because this is the production process and there's nothing else we can do about it. What can we say about it today? I mean, how, how do we denormalize this situation? Um, I think we denormalize it by having, I mean, one way to denormalize this is obviously by having these kind of discussions we are having and having them more and more and more and more and more different spaces where we question exactly that. Why is night labor necessary? And we know, I mean, he, he, Marx makes a very clear argument of, you know, why, the, why it is necessary for capital, because it's too expensive to switch off the machines. So the machine is more important than the human body, than the human being who gets exhausted, who gets destroyed, literally destroyed by night labor. Um, but I, yeah, I think we denormalize by repeatedly asking about it but I would like to you know also Christian I think because you have written about discourses of capitalism and I think that the normalization of these discourses in society so I don't know if you want to come in here how we can denormalize them because I think that's really the big question for all of us uh, yeah thanks Anna you know it's interesting because I was just going to play like quote-unquote devil's advocate uh in terms of these discourses where um yeah, I mean, as as we as well, the, the four of us here know that human beings biologically are not designed to be nocturnal creatures, right? However, when you, uh, I have heard people again in the context of the U.S., but I've heard people talk about in terms of night jobs and it, going beyond the factory place. But I mean, where people might say something like, um, "Well, you know, Christian, uh, 
okay, so if we don't, if we eliminate night jobs. What about cops? Don't, don't cops have to police the cities at night? Because, you know, if they stop working at night, all the, the crime rates will go up. And so, you know, it's inter- how do we actually address that, that um, where these police workers are, you know, having to work night shifts because of quote unquote, to battle crime, uh, where people would say, well, you know, that, that, that would not be good for society. Um, and a counter response to that would be, well, why do you think there's crime in the first place? Because in a quote unquote, unfettered capitalist society, such as the US, where crime rates are much higher than other countries uh, because of the much higher poverty levels in the US. So is there a connection between the unfettered capitalist system and the rates of crime? If if I may, because the, the last question goes right in this direction. So we are talking about all these ills that Marx noticed. Uh, we compare them to what is happening today. Um, what could really be the solution? Yeah, because um, Marx says, and I quote, capitalism has a werewolf-like hunger for surplus labor. So the cause of all this, if I understand Marx correctly, is systemic. We have a system, we have an economic system of exploitation. So how do we reply to this? Um, and from from what I saw in the text, there could be two ways. Marx says society needs to intervene. Yeah. And then he says something that verges on the scientific, right? Um, the workers, the owners of their labor could also probably help stabilize these unequal relations, maybe also rebalance or tip again the balance of power in their favor, probably, by owning the fact that they are the owners uh, of their labor. This is my interpretation, so do correct me if I'm wrong. Um, and by using it, in a sense, to bolster their position, yeah? to independently or collectively uh, act as uh, sellers of this commodity, yeah? because they also have a power. So recover their power, in a sense. Yeah? So there would be two options, at least, that I see coming from the text. Again, you know, I, I raised that you know, existential point, but going back to... That again, I would just ask people again, you know, what do you think life is all about? What What is life? As you know, like in particular societies or countries, the life expectancies um, are much longer than others and others are much shorter. And so again, why is that? And so when we think about how we would actually structure our daily lives um, in thinking about what, what we're actually working for, and who we're working for, what we're working on, I think in terms of how, you know, and a lot of people are, are totally aware of this, but um, for many, um, obviously, they feel they have no choice. Uh, and I've also talked about this in my work where a number of people have taken up that discourse, it is what it is, or what are you gonna do about it? Well, um, people have done something about it in the past. so. And again, of course, it depends on the particular societal or national context where um, people have attempted to change uh, things. But is, um, is I don't know, is there a uniform strategy or not? Yeah, maybe if I can take us back to the text itself. And the, the because I've actually struggled with the text. 
I find Marx is incredibly nuanced in this text and he's not actually telling us what to do. But I think in my reading of the text, he's telling us what not to do. And that is reform. Because he has this, it's, it's a like right at the beginning, I think it's right on page three or something, when he has this voice of the worker who seemingly rational enters the market and says, you know, I will sell my labor power. I give it, you know, we, we are on a market, we exchange things, I have something to offer you, the capitalist wants something. And so that is it, I'm entering this market as a free agent. Um, and so at the beginning of the text, I thought, no, man, is this Marx? Are you actually trying to tell me that we should sell our labor power, that we should alienate ourselves, that we are, that we are, that there's a possession when we can allow ourselves to be dispossessed of ourselves? Is this, is this really what you think? And then in my reading of the text, and maybe I'm wrong, he then takes us through pages and pages of unraveling that argument and actually showing us in the end that this voice of the worker at the beginning who entered into a negotiation with the capitalist was never a free agent, was ever ex always exploited, will always be exploited. And so that the only thing that we can get because at the end, also when I, the very first time I read the text, I thought, why does he call it, I mean, now we have the eight hour working day, why does he call it a modest achievement? Modest is the word that he used. He's not impressed with the struggles of the British working class in the 19th century. The eight hour working day is not what the goal is. The goal is to undo exactly, as you say, the system of capitalism. So that is the solution. But he doesn't kind of, as a reader, he doesn't, he doesn't tell you that. He, he kind of gets you there and you really have to think with him to get to the point that at the end, indeed, what was achieved the eight hour working day? Well, it's better than the 12 hour or the 15 hour working day, but it's still a problem. And all it does at the moment, it stabilizes the system of capitalism rather than really questioning it. And then we get into these discourses of, yeah, it is what it is, you know, if we can just improve a little, if we can earn a bit more, if we can have longer breaks. So we, but we still work within the system. And my understanding of Marxism in general is that that is never the goal. The goal is the worker struggle, which means that the means of production go into the, into the hand of the workers. And it's not to negotiate, because you can't negotiate with a vampire. So again, it comes also to his word choice, which you really follow his word choice. It's like you can't negotiate. It's impossible. So if Marxism and Marx himself is, is revolutionary, or the, his, his goals are revolutionary rather than reformist, I'll ask you this perhaps controversial question. Was it intelligent of Marx and Engels and his contemporaries and his and his followers to actually publish these texts. Is it intelligent, for, you know, of us to sort of you know publish our work so that vampires, capitalists can read our work, um, appropriate the language, and um, you know do a couple of reforms here and there um, in order to sort of. Uh, keep everyone quiet, um, should we perhaps not be more secretive and more careful in the way we um, proclaim the revolution? Well, I think we need to be vigilant. 
ever vigilant. So I think we need to proclaim the revolution and we need to share this, this, this alternative discourses because if, if they're not being shared, we're not gonna, they need to go into the mainstream in a way. You know, we want the discourse, Marx wanted to get these discourses out. That was important because if we would have not published his ideas, these ideas wouldn't have not gotten out. But at the same time, I think it's, it's like a toxic relationship with capitalism, you know? It, it, capitalism will kind of be nice and then they will appropriate it and then they will talk as if they actually mean it as if they think of discourses about well-being in institutions the kind of you know a, a wellness day when we are supposed all to kind of be looking after ourselves those are all those moments where the system just appropriates good discourses but in its own interests and we just got to kind of keep as critical, I think as critical applied linguists, our job is to keep showing again, this is an appropriation of the discourse. Yes, I, you know, it's interesting where we, we've been mentioning several times, uh, you know, that capitalism is vampire, vampirism, of course, um, but it reminded me when rereading it, it reminded me, and I have not seen the film since I was a kid, but, you know, the the original version, the Hollywood movie, came out in the mid-1930s, I believe, um, 1937 or so, Bela Lugosi, you know, Dracula, right? And as I'm recalling from the movie, correct me if I'm wrong, but where, you know, he wasn't, I mean, you know, this monster, the character of Dracula, as portrayed in the Hollywood film, um, was able to get up and suck people's blood, not being by being a monstrosity necessarily, but by being quote unquote seductive, appealing and seductive, right? Charming. And then the people go trusting him and then sucking the blood. Which brings me to my next point, which uh, builds on what Anna is talking about, because um, rather than reforming Dracula, as you know, the ending, and I'm giving away the ending for those people who have not seen the movie, um, they drove a stake through his heart. And so going back to Jaspal's, you know, uh, uh, question, you know, where this discourse, uh, again, in the context of the U.S., where uh, particular politicians, and they will not be named, but particular politicians, and not just uh, on the right, but on the left as well, or liberals, whatever, where, you know, they fostered that discourse of, you know, uh, certain people stealing your jobs. You know, those those people are stealing your jobs. They're crossing the border and they're stealing your, your jobs. And I think this is important where we, you know, find again, you know, ways in which to say, um, to tell people who, who have not read, of course, because it's not in any high school curriculum, of course, you know, any, any Marx or other associated uh, writers, uh, they're not the ones stealing your jobs. They're not the ones giving away your jobs. Um, and so I think to um, confront, quote unquote, liberals who do appropriate certain uh, terminologies to say, uh, you know, you're part of the system. You're, you're friends with the vampire. You may not be seen as the vampire, but you're buddies with Dracula. This is a beautiful, um, it's a beautiful sentence, and I particularly like it because I should tell you that I am positioned in Transylvania and I have a relation to the fictional Dracula. <laughs> uh, so, um, yeah, this is um, this is our connection in a sense for today. I'm also glad that um, we actually uh, went back to the vampire met metaphor because I have prepared as well a paragraph in which Marx 
very clearly talks about, about it. So I'm going to uh, quote him again. It must be acknowledged that our worker em emerges from the process of production looking different from when he entered it. In the market, as owner of the commodity labor power, he stood face to face with the owners of commodities, one owner against one an another owner. The contract by which he sold his labor power to the capitalist proved in black and white, so to speak, that he was free to dispose of himself. But when the transaction was concluded, it was discovered that he was no free agent, that the period of time for which he is free to sell his labor power is the period of time for which he is forced to sell it, that in fact the vampire will not let go while there remains a single muscle, sinew or drop of blood to be exploited. End of quote. Um, so to wrap, our, wrap up our discussion for today, which um, I found very interesting. And thank you very much to, to our guests. Are we doomed to work ourselves to death under the demands of surplus value and capitalism? Isn't there any type of work that when paid does not uh, follow this logic? Christian, would you like to start? Yes, you know, again, going back to um, our workplace, academia, again, as as you know, as and many people know um, within academia, and I don't have the data to support this, just anecdotal evidence, but just that uh, a number of academics, well-known academics, um, have passed away at a relatively early age. Uh, a number of them passed away in their late 50s, early 60s. Um, and, you know, again, going, uh, rebutting this idea of like, oh, well, you know, academics, you have this, you know, leisure time, you don't, you're not working your ass off in a factory, inhaling toxic fumes. Yes, of course. Um, but then why is that the, a good number of academics, again, in the context of the U.S., where the, um, the median age of uh, passing for uh, would be around in the 70s, 75, 76, depending on race and class, of course. But anyway, where these academics have passed away almost 20 years before uh, this this age. And so I would raise that question. Uh, well, was it because of overwork? I've recently you know, started to read and think a lot about the concept of exhaustion. And it was quite interesting that, you know, there's some work on exhaustion as a, as a new concept that actually started with the 19th century and thus with the advent of capitalism. And I mean, now we call it burnout, but it is exhaustion is a physical disability basically from overwork. That is what exhaustion is. Exhaustion is not feeling tired one day and a good night's sleep and you're good the next day. It is the sense of a constant Exhaustion. Exhaustion is constant. It's, it, it's not a moment. It's a it's, it's a condition in a way. And so so what Christian is saying is, you know, it is that, you know, is our modern workplaces, including academia, are creating the state of exhaustion, the state of burnout, not as something we can somehow treat and it happens sometimes, but as a kind of systemic health issue within in the in the place, even though our workplaces look nothing nothing like these horrendous factories Marx describes, but something echoes there, 
And so what do we, I mean, you know, the, the what, what Christian now was saying, I wasn't aware of it, but it, that is really shocking, you know, if people, but it's also understandable. If people work 60 hour weeks, and we know that this is not uncommon in academic workplaces, then yes, something's got to give our bodies. When, when do we, you know, regenerate? And it is not, and I'm not sure if any of you has this feeling, but I often feel like that, like working on this, rereading this chapter several times, I didn't feel like work, but I felt actually I was snatching work away. And while I was rereading the chapter, and I was actually doing my work as a scholar, I was rereading a chapter, thinking about it, reflecting on it, trying to understand it, all what was going on somewhere at the back of my mind. Oh, I need to give feedback on this. Oh, I still need to write this report. Oh, I still need to do this. And so I think that is what is causing then the exhaustion. It's the intensification. So maybe we work less hours, but they are so fully packed, which is also, I think, why a topic such as workloads, when we talk about workloads, it's not so much as like, what is a reasonable workload? It is how much we have to do before the end of the semester. It is our workload, whether it's reasonable or not. And so we might not be, you know, as Jasper said, we might not be having somebody standing behind us and say, work, work, work all the time. But we have this list of things we need to do. And it clearly, I mean, what Christian was saying, it clearly affects the well-being of academics too. Yeah, if I could just jump, oh, sorry, if I could just jump in quickly, building on what Anna said, yes. And again, how many of us, and I'll just speak from my own experience, when we're actually reading a book, and maybe not even in a quote-unquote academic book or related to our field, but we're actually just reading a book, how many of us actually feel guilty oh, I'm just reading, I'm not doing, I'm not producing, blah, 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 I'm just reading, but aren't, and then when you talk to people outside academia, people would say, well, isn't that what professors are supposed to do? You're supposed to read and gain knowledge? I know, but we're not, I'm not producing X amount of articles, books. It's a logic of production, a logic of pro productivity, which has to keep going and going and going. And somehow we believe that something really terrible is going to happen if we stop. And will it? What would happen if we stop? Nothing. We'll probably be happier. But but the interesting thing is we don't seem, I mean, I sometimes feel like it's almost impossible to stop. How do I stop? It's actually so thinking about the possibility of a six-hour workday felt very difficult. It felt difficult. So what is it? How can we move out of, of, of this thinking? So we are also in the system. You know, we might be we might have the discourse to critique it and all of that, but at the same time, psychologically, we're in it. All right, great. Thank you both so very much. We we have one final question prepared prepared for you, um, and that is perhaps a bit more light touch, perhaps not though. Um, if you met Marx today, what would you say to Marx? Did you have a nice afterlife? <laughs> you got there will be so many things to talk about. Uh, but just, you know, kind of circling back to what Anna was talking about at the very beginning, you know, again, where I was reminded on that last page where he wrote, uh, when he was writing about it in the context of the US, where he writes, you know, labor cannot uh, emancipate itself in the white skin. 
wherein the blanket is branded and where I had argued in, in that was that, okay, this was like the early awareness of race connected with class. And, but um, just, you know, a slight critique where maybe I would raise to Marx. And of course he wouldn't have, have access to this knowledge because this is pre-internet days, right? But that where he talks about the uh, institution of, in the, again, in the context of the US, the US government instituting an eight hour work day um, but that he was not, um, and he was talking about the, uh, the uh, in the context of the railroad, building the railroad, but it was apparent from that chapter um, that he was not aware of the Chinese immigrant labor that was brought over to build the Central Pacific Railroad, and they were not working eight hours a day. They were working almost 20 hours, 18 to 20 hours a day, but they were not included under that law because they were undocumented or whatever immigrant labor. Uh, and so again, going beyond the black white binary, uh, again, in the context of the US where um, addressing how immigrant labor, um, and Marx is aware of this and to a certain extent with the Irish, of course, but how immigrant labor has been used to uh, divide and you know rule over the working class, um, not only in the US, of course, but other countries as well. So this is one of the things I would talk to him about um, with that. Um, but maybe on a lighter note, just quickly, I would also ask him because as you know, and I had I had read it a couple of years ago. Um, I'm blanking on the exact title, I, I should look it up, but I think it's called Love and Capital, where they taught, he taught uh, the, the, the um, biography of not just Marx, but his partner, uh, Jenny Marx, who came from a very wealthy family. Um, and that was um, where be, after she inherited the money, they were able to uh, move into a really nice place um, in high, the Highgate uh, neighborhood of London. Um, so just maybe asking Marx about that, the contradictions of like, well, you know, you lived a pretty bougie life, especially with your rich friend Ingalls. Um, talk about those contradictions, Carl. Anna, what what this was a this was a very nice question, um, Christian. I would love to hear Marx's answer. Anna, what what would you like to ask him? Yeah. I guess what what Christian is saying is really important. So his his kind of blind spots. Um, I mean, he also has a very clear blind spot. I think not only around race but also around gender, um, which also comes out very clearly in this chapter where he states at one point that the voice, if you if you look at it, the voices of children are always boy children, and so male children. And he says they speak for all the experiences of women as well. And so that is actually, you know, there, there are some moments, I think there are moments in his, 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 his work where we really want to interrogate from an intersectional perspective, um, the things he's not seeing. But I think, I think the one question I would like to ask him is, you know, you wrote in the 19th century that, you know, there's going to be the, the worker struggle, the proletariat will rise. Why has it not risen? What, what are we doing wrong? How are we going to get that systemic change? Would you predict it? Because the whole idea of history was that change will come. And now it hasn't come. So what is his analysis of why it didn't happen? This is a very good question. A very good question with which we can actually finally wrap up the discussion. Um, it's a question for our 
listeners as well. So thank you very much um, to our guests and also to our listeners um, to having reached this endpoint with us. And uh, we would like to invite you, of course, um, for the next episodes of the series to listen to us, uh, to engage with our ideas. And um, of course, you also have the possibility of listening to the previous episodes. So thank you very much again and uh, stay tuned.